Please turn with me to Acts chapter 24. So we are going to be, Lord willing, finishing up chapter 24 this morning. Uh, we are also going to be, at the end of our service, uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper. And so uh, if you are new to our church, uh, the Lord's Supper at Bethany is open to all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we invite you to participate in that with us. Um, if you did not grab uh, the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, you may do so here now in a moment when we, we stand to read God's Word. In fact, let's do that now. Please stand with me as we read uh, Acts chapter 24. Remember in Acts chapter 24, Paul has just given his defense before Felix, and we're going to see Felix's response beginning in verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do, do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you for how you have instructed us through it. We pray that you would help us to, as we consider these gospel truths, to be conscious of our need for you, the righteousness we have through your faith the righteousness we have through faith in your son Jesus, and that you would allow us to be bold in, in proclaiming that faith to others. And we pray for genuine, true repentance in each of our hearts this morning as we prepare to partake of your supper. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What's your most urgent, pressing need this morning? Think, okay, this is this is the most important thing that's going on in my life right now. Maybe it's a financial need that you have this morning. Maybe there's a, a relational need that you have. There's, there's some relationship that appears to be damaged right now, and it's uh, troubling you. Maybe you're at school or, or, or at uh, work, and you have this project that's, that's weighing on you very heavily. If I were to ask you this morning, okay, what's, what's on your mind? What's your most pressing need? If, if there's like one problem in your life that could just poof, be solved, what would it be? I can think uh, of different times in my life where different needs have, have seemed to be pressing. And then something comes along and I realize, okay, th this is actually my new most pressing need. Think of a, a few months ago whenever Whitney went into the hospital. That morning I had a, a lot of things on my to-do list. And if you had asked me at the beginning of the morning, okay, what's, what's your most pressing need? I said, well, you know what, I've got five things. And, and each of these things are incredibly pressing right now, and if I don't get these solved, I don't know what I'm going to do. By the, by the end of the day, 
none of those things had gotten done and none of them mattered. In fact, by the end of the next two weeks, none of them had gotten done and really ultimately none of them mattered. Unless it was a meeting with you, I apologize. It was very important, you know. You know. Scripture tells us, though, what's an even more pressing need than a financial need or relational need with another human being or even a health need. It tells us that our most pressing need is for a relationship with the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It tells us that that's our most pressing need, to be in relationship with Him, to have a right relationship with Him. That's the purpose for which we were created, to glorify Him in this relationship we're to have with Him. What's more, Scripture tells us, it's impossible to obtain that relationship on our own works. We need to be righteous to be in relationship with God. And that righteousness on our own is impossible for us to obtain. We need to be given that righteousness. That is our most pressing need that any of us have this morning. We need to be in relationship with God. And to be in relationship with God, we need a righteousness that we cannot earn, a righteousness we don't deserve. And so my goal this morning is is to alarm you a little bit. In a a biblical, Christ-centered way, I want to alarm you. And I want to then comfort you with some truths, but first confront you with some alarming truths. Here's, here's the main idea that I want us to think about. As we look at Paul confronting Felix here, here's, here's the central idea of this text. When confronted with your need for righteousness, a need that every single person in here has, and a need they cannot meet on their own, when confronted with your need for righteousness, what do you do? You, by God's grace, repent of your sins and trust in Christ. That's the right response. And so what we're going to do is we're going to to look at some alarming gospel truths first. We're going to see Paul confronting Felix, and we're going to see three truths that are incredibly alarming. And then after we look at those alarming truths, we're going to see two different responses to those alarming truths. We're going to see a right response and a wrong response. We'll look at the, the wrong response of Felix and the right response that Paul is calling him to. So let's, let's begin by looking at three alarming truths. And we'll look a little bit at the context, and then we'll look at the three topics that Paul brings up in verse 25. But first, let's kind of get a little bit of the layout of the situation. Remember what's happened. Paul has been brought before Felix, and there's been a trial. And remember we talked about there's kind of five different phases of a Roman trial. That The first phase is whenever the accusers arrive and they appear before the judge and they say, we have this case that we want you to look at. And so that was the first phase that happens is uh, Tertullus, this orator and the high priest, arrive before Felix. They say, okay, we have this case. And then the second phase of the trial is when the accuser appears, or the accused appears. And so Paul appeared before Felix. And then the the third of the five phases of the Roman trial would be whenever the people who are giving the accusations against the accused, they lay out their case. They say, okay, here's the different charges that we think this person is guilty of, and here's why we think that he is guilty of them. And so they've, they've done that as well. And then the fourth part of the Roman trial would be in which the person who's being accused gives their defense. And that's what we saw at the end of the section we were looking at last week in chapter 24. Paul says, okay, this is what I'm accused of, and now let me lay out my defense, and here's why what they're saying about me is not true. 
And then the, the last part of a Roman trial would be when the, per, when the judge makes a decision. And there were a lot of different decisions a judge could make. The judge could just say, yep, guilty. The judge could say, nope, innocent. The judge could say, guilty, but not of the things you're accusing him of. I think he's actually guilty of these things. Or the judge could say, I want to hear some more evidence, and I want these people to appear before me. Or the judge could just say, eh, I'll deal with this later. And that's what Felix does, right? Look at the, look at the text. In verse 22, this is the last part of the trial. Felix, and it says he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way, and, and perhaps he has a more accurate knowledge of the way because of his Jewish wife, Drusilla, who we'll talk about later. Remember that phrase, the way, refers to Christianity. This is one of Luke's ways of describing a, a person who's a Christian. They're a follower of the way, and Felix has a, an accurate knowledge of Christianity to, to some degree, and so he says, you know what? Uh, I'm he says, I, I'm, I'm going to deal with this later. It says he put them off, and that phrase that's translated put them off is a word that was used in legal context to describe the delay of a decision. And so he's, he's making a decision to not make a decision right now. In fact, look what else he says. He says, he, Felix responds, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And this is totally him kicking the can down the road, right? He already knows what Lysias thinks. Remember, Lysias wrote him a letter in chapter 23, and it was very obvious he did not think that Paul was guilty of the charges that he was being accused of. And so what is Felix doing? He's just trying to not deal with this right now. He knows that Paul is innocent. He has an accurate knowledge of the way. And yet, at the same time, he doesn't want to make the Jews mad. Look at verse 23. He gives orders for Paul to have some liberties. He tells the centurion who's overseeing his uh, being guarded, says, hey, make sure all his needs are met to give him some freedom and also allow his, his friends to minister to him. And then in verse 24, this woman Drusilla arrives. This is Felix's wife, and this relationship between her and Felix is a, is a scandalous relationship. Remember some months ago we talked about the different Herods, and in Acts chapter 12, we talked about Herod Agrippa. Remember in chapter 12, Herod Agrippa was the Herod who had James killed and put Peter in prison. That, that Herod, uh, grandson of Herod the Great, that Herod had a daughter, and that's Drusilla. This is Herod from chapter 12, his daughter. Herod had promised his daughter to one ruler. That ruler had decided not to become Jewish, and so that marriage was canceled. And then he gave her in marriage to a ruler named Azizus, and Azizus was a ruler of a small territory in, in Syria, and uh, at age 14, she married Azizus. Felix traveled and in that region saw her. And Felix, when he saw her, decided that he wanted her for himself. And he left, and after he left, he found this guy, and he said, okay, I want you to, to go, and I want you to, to, to woo this woman away from her husband. And so this guy went, and he stayed in the, the area where she was. He pretended to be a magician. He convinced Drusilla to leave her husband, and at, at one, one day she pretended to be sick, and they, they escaped, they fled, and uh, Felix married her at age 16, right? So, it's a very scandalous relationship. This relationship was not looked on favorably by the Jews. 
In fact, one Jewish historian described Drusilla as transgressing the laws of her forefathers and committing adultery in this relationship. And she comes with Felix, and they listen to Paul speak. That's verse 24, right? It says, he come, Felix comes with his wife Drusilla, he sends for Paul, and he heard him speak. And what was Paul speaking about? Verse 24 tells us about faith in Jesus Christ. And then, he brings up three alarming topics, and look at verse 25. It describes these three alarming topics. First, first notice this. It says in verse 25, he, that's Paul, reasoned. He reasoned with Felix. That word that's translated reasoned is the, the Greek word dialogeomai. Dialogeomai. You can hear the word dialogue in there. It means to engage in a conversation with the, the desire to persuade. And you see this, this word appears 13 times in the New Testament, 10 times here in the book of Acts. Oftentimes you see Paul dialoguing with people. He's, he's trying to convince them of the truths of Christianity. He says, okay, let me, let me, let me persuade you about Jesus Christ and how he is the, the true Messiah. And let me explain to you your need for him and, and how you need to place your faith, turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. We see Paul often dialoguing with people. And as an aside, all of us need to be prepared to, to engage in persuasive conversations with those who are not believers. Paul is engaging in a, a dialogue with Felix here with this desire to persuade Felix for the need that he has and for him to grasp his need for a Savior. And so, Paul brings up three topics. Look at what the text tells us. What are the three topics of conversation that Paul has with Felix the text tells us, alarm Felix as he hears about them. Well, he's dialoguing with him. He's reasoning with him about righteousness, one. Two, self-control. And three, about the coming judgment. These are three alarming topics for Felix. And let's consider what alarming truths are revealed as Paul talks about these alarming topics. Number one, three alarming truths. Number one, righteousness. Paul is telling Felix, we need a righteousness that we do not possess. The word righteous means to be upright. As, as Herman Bovink, the, the great theologian from the early 20th century put it, he, he says this, righteousness is the justness which a person himself possesses and the just action which he does in relation to others. So it's, it's something, first of all, righteousness can, can refer to a, a characteristic that we have, and sometimes in the New Testament we, we see it used in kind of this, this legal context. It's, it's something that's, that is declared to be true of us. We're righteous. Our, our, our actions are, are justified. And then it's, it's, it's the ethical things we do because we're righteous. We, we do right things. We're de declared righteous and we do righteous things. And what would Paul be talking with Felix about as he talks about righteousness? First of all, he, he might be telling him, I, I, look, Felix, um, you need to be righteous. You need to be declared righteous. You need to act in a righteous way. As, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And so, uh, 
Felix, Paul would say, you need righteousness. You need your, your actions to be, to be ethical. You need to be just. You need to, to be declared righteous by God. Another thing that Paul would be telling him is, look, um, the lack of righteousness that you possess is going to be the basis upon which God judges you. Remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul, when he's in a similar situation where he's engaged in this, this semi-legal proceeding in the Areopagus in Athens, he would say this, he would say, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in what? In righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him, that's Christ, from the dead. Felix, Paul is saying, your actions are not in accord with that which is correct. There's a need that you have for a judicial ruling to, to be declared you're righteous by God, and because of who you are, you are not going to receive that declaration. Again, uh, Herman Bavink says this, he says, there can be no doubt about the fact that all men without exception are guilty of transgressing the law of God and are deserving of the punishment which he has appointed for such transgression since the disobedience of Adam, a stream of unrighteousness has had unbroken sway over the human race. The imagination and the thoughts of the human heart are continually evil from youth on up. All are born unclean. They're all gone aside, and there's none that does good. No, not one. Felix is going to find this alarming, as should we all. On a Sunday morning, one of the things I, I try not to do very much is, uh, <laughs> is, is look in a mirror, right? Maybe some of you have, have had to, to speak publicly sometimes, and you've, you've kind of glanced at yourself in the mirror, and you're like, oh, no. Uh, I, I've got to be, you know, maybe just something's not looking right today or whatever, and you kind of start, kind of get in your mind like, oh man, everyone's going to notice this. Like, I remember one time when I was uh, w very young, I was one time having to, to speak on a, an evening at the church, and I, I looked in the mirror, and I had this in incredible uh, pimple right there in the middle of the forehead. And I, I kind of, I told myself, you know what? No one's going to notice it's not that big of a deal. And then I, I, I walk into the, the church that evening, and the first thing someone said to me is, oh, no, you have to speak with that? <laughs> so I try not to look in the mirror very much on a Sunday morning or whatever. And think, okay, you know what? Uh, whatever it is, no one's going to notice. And, and you guys are so sweet. You notice everything. Um, <laughs> But you feel like you feel maybe you, maybe you feel this way, maybe you don't. But you just feel like you're under, you're under a microscope. Everyone is, is aware, and so you just try to fool yourself. Okay, maybe maybe people aren't, and I'm not even going to tell you some of the things because I don't want you to notice them. There's there's things you okay. I just the, the spotlight's on. That's why I try to get the lights low. There's no hiding before God. You, you think you're exposed standing in a group of people. I mean. Your, your very soul is exposed before God, right? There's no, there's no place that you can hide. There's, there's, no, there's no tree you can, can cover yourself with. There's, there's no way to, to, to hide your soul before the ever-penetrating eye of our Heavenly Father. That's frightening. Second truth is also alarming. We also don't have the self-control to obtain righteousness. This is the second of, of three topics Paul brings up, self-control. The word means to, to restrain one's emotions or impulses or desires. And Paul, what, what might he have said to Felix here? 
Paul, Paul might have said to Felix, Felix, you do not have the ability to exercise self-control. Now, we don't know how tactful Paul was. We don't know how aggressive he was. But he could have said, look, um, your wife here is exhibit A of your lack of self-control. You lusted after her. You stole her from another man. You engaged in an adulterous relationship. Here's exhibit A of your lack of self-control. I'm exhibit B. You don't have the self-control to, to do the right thing, to practice justice and declare me innocent. You've, you've, you've punted. You've delayed. You lack self-control. You lack the ability to control your impulses. Now, do you think that our, pro- our culture has a problem with self-control, with refraining from sin? Our culture, is, in fact, has redefined sin to make self-control instead of a virtue, a vice. To exercise self-control or to encourage others to exercise self-control when it comes to issues like lust is to be seen as, as uh, abusive. To exercise restraint is a form of abuse. I was watching a, a commercial this, this past week, and the product was for a, a medicine that could, could uh, deal with sexually transmitted diseases, and the tagline was, keep being you, right? In other words, don't worry about the consequences of your behavior. Just keep doing the things you want to do, and, and don't worry about it, right? That's our culture's message. And to suggest to a person that they restrain themselves is to engage in abusive behavior, Encouraging self-control, resisting the appetites of the flesh is seen as morally wrong. But let me suggest this. Despite what our culture claims to believe, Scripture tells us that the reality of what people are experiencing is is something very different. Think about what Paul would say in Romans chapter 1. Again, we're talking about God's righteousness and, and our unrighteousness. In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so God has declared, here's who I am. There's a, an inner uh, revelation that God has given us of who he is and the moral law that we're to obey. There is revelation that he has given us throughout the universe of, of who he is and the laws that we are to obey. And what do men and women do when God reveals himself to them and his moral law and his character and his invisible attributes? What do we do? We suppress it. We say, no, I don't believe it. No, I don't believe it. No, I don't believe it. We try to suppress that truth. Verse 20 or verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And so let me suggest this, what God's word tells us is despite the fact that we know what's right and wrong and yet try to suppress it, we try to damage our conscience, despite that attempt, it's not going to be ultimately successful even as we live in a culture that redefines what's right and wrong, there's still a God who, by his common grace, has given us a moral law that's written on every human heart, a recognition. Because of that, we know that we're not righteous. And I think all of us recognize the reality. We don't have the self-control necessary to stop doing the things we know to be evil. Despite our culture's attempts 
to mock sexual immorality, to normalize sexual immorality, we still know in our hearts that things like pornography or other forms of sexual morality, we, we still know that they're wrong. As men and women, we still feel shamed. Despite our culture's attempts to normalize, we still feel shame when we think about these actions. It's frustrating reality for many people. Even those who desire to change can't do enough good things to become righteous. They, they cannot have enough self-control to, to stop doing evil things, much less pursue God's righteousness. Our Baptist forefathers in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith put it, put it this way, man by his fall into a state of sin, they would say, has, has lost his ability to do any spiritual good accompanying salvation. In and of ourselves, we've lost our ability to, to do those good works that could lead to salvation. They would go on to say, man is, and, and women are not able by their own strength to convert themselves or prepare themselves to be converted. We, we, we can't do those things that are necessary to, to bring about salvation. So it's not that we just can't do righteous things. We can't even restrain from the evil things. Our lives are characterized by a lack of self-control, and so the deeds of the flesh are evident within us. As Paul would say in Galatians 5, that the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So these are all the deeds of the flesh. And all of us would say, yeah, I, I see aspects of that in my own heart. And then the, the bad news gets worse because Paul goes on in Galatians 5 and says, I warn you, I, I, I warn you, I want you to be alarmed. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is incredibly alarming. We need a righteousness we don't possess. We don't have the self-control to obtain righteousness. And here's the third alarming truth. Number three, we should fear the coming judgment. Paul, it says, spoke to Felix of righteousness of, of self-control, and of the coming judgment. That was the, the third area that he spoke to him about. God is going to judge, Paul would tell Felix, those who are not righteous. In Romans, we see the need for righteousness as we come to Romans chapter 2. Paul would say, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And the answer is no. You aren't righteous. You know it deep down, Felix. You don't have the self-control to even do the things you know are right, or avoid the things you know are wrong. There's a coming judgment, and that it's alarming. On, on Christmas Day, uh, while we were on sabbatical, we found ourselves in an airport in Chicago, and we were approaching the, the gate, or we're approaching the little ticket booth, and we're trying to, to get our tickets and stuff, and, and the, the person who was checking us in said, okay, now I need such and such a form. And you know, all, all six of us are up there, and, and I said, I don't know 
I don't know what form you're talking about. The words that are coming out of your mouth, I've never heard before. And she said, well, no, you should have got an email that, um, that described all the different things you need. And, you know, thing number seven was this. I said, that is very interesting. Kids, can you guys go over there a little bit? Um, because mommy's about to tell daddy some things that, you know, could ruin Christmas for you. Uh, <laughs> because I definitely told mommy that I had done some of these things that apparently I have not done. You know, I, I find myself uh, there at an airport on Christmas Day needing some things I don't have. We were able to get them, uh, spoiler alert, but it was quite frightening there for a moment that I could have ruined my family's travel plans, right? Didn't have what I needed. How much fear should we have as we contemplate standing before God someday and not having that which we need? which is his righteousness. In Revelation chapter 20, here, here's some, again, some alarming truths. Paul, uh, John writes, I saw a great white throne and, 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 and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I, I, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How scary it is to be judged on the basis of our own righteousness on the basis of our own deeds. If that is our hope, if my deeds are my hope before I stand before the judgment of God, how frightened should I be? Those are alarming truths. We need a righteousness we don't possess. We don't have the self-control to obtain that righteousness. We should fear the coming judgment. Those are alarming truths. Now, let's talk about two different responses to those truths. One response is to refuse to repent. To refuse to repent. Felix, it says in verse 25, is alarmed. It means to be, to be afraid, startled, terrified. Luke uses the word twice in, in Luke chapter 24 to describe people who see the resurrected Lord and, and to, to, uh, people who see the uh, uh, heavenly messengers, and so it's it's describing this this encounter with with the, the supernatural. It's it's a, a moment in which the the material world is, is put in its proper perspective. So you see the material world and and the spiritual world, and and that's I think what's happening for Felix as well. There's an encounter with the the supernatural, appealing away of the superficialness of the material world by itself, and there are several ways at that moment, that we can respond. And here's how Felix responds. And all of his responses, there's several of them, none of them indicate repentance, right? He says, uh, go away for now, go away for the present. And he says, at the right time, when I get opportunity, then we'll talk. 
And then we also see that he, he does talk with Paul when he feels like it, but he wants to get money from Paul. Perhaps he thinks Paul has access to money from churches. Remember earlier in his defense, he talked about how he brought alms to, to Jerusalem to, to give to the, to the needs of the saints there in Jerusalem. And so perhaps Felix thinks, well, well Paul has a, a lot of money, and maybe I can get access to that, that money. But ultimately, it says two years go by, and Felix is seceded by Festus, and he leaves Paul in prison. Now, a couple things we see here about our own temptation and how to respond when confronted with, with terrifying gospel truths, with alarming gospel truths. And again, none of these are true repentance. Here, here's one potential response. These are all refusals to repent. One, we can suppress our momentary alarm, Right? So we refuse to repent. How does this exercise itself? One, we can suppress this momentary alarm we feel. So the, the nature of reality is revealed to us in this moment, and, and we see things for how they truly are. We become aware of our, our desperate need for something more. We stare into the spiritual abyss. It frightens us, and what do we do? Romans 1, we suppress it. Okay, I, I don't want to think about that. Maybe you've been in a moment where God has brought you to a position where you need to think about the reality of your sin, and, and what do you do? You, see, okay, you know what? I don't want to think about it right now. I'm going to suppress that. I, you've, been in a, you've been in a sermon. You've been in a church service where through the, the songs that were sung and the, the, the word of God that was, was preached, you, you heard the reality of the need to turn from sin. And, and instead, of, instead of taking this message and taking it home with you and meditating on it, you say, okay, you know what? Let me turn on the TV. Let me pull up the phone. Let me call a friend. Let me listen to music. You, you've refused to, to think about the, the alarming truths that God has allowed you to, to think about. Or maybe there's been a situation where God has brought you to a, a position of humility and you've, you've refused to, to, to take the time to really think about what God's Word says. So one way to refuse to repent is to have a suppression of this momentary alarm that you feel like, like Felix does. Or another way to refuse to repent, you delay and, and flirt with repentance. Kind of flirt with it. Delay it also what Felix does. He says, when I get the opportunity, means that the appointed time, let me, let me talk to you, let me, let me think about it, but I'm not going to really repent. I feel better kind of talking with you a little bit and telling myself that I'm engaging in some thoughts about repentance, but it's, it's just delay. It's just flirtation. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writes that God says, In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. Now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Another way to refuse to repent is to fake repentance. To fake repentance. There's a worldly sorrow, a, a bare minimum we, we do to make the guilty feelings go away. It says here, it's a very interesting word, that's in the Greek and is translated by the phrase at the same time. So he's trying to have it both ways. And ultimately, what Felix wants is he, he wants to, to feel better about himself, but he also wants to get some money and he wants to keep the Jews happy. And ultimately, ultimately, it proves to be too much. He has to make a decision and his repentance, which is, is no repentance, it's not even really all that fake repentance, he, he decides to please the Jews. Engaging in true repentance, of course, is, is not an action, right? When I, when I say we need to repent, I'm not talking about actions we do. Repentance is turning from sin, 
turning from our dead works and turning to Jesus Christ. So let's, let's talk about that. Number two, here's the potential, another potential response, and that's to trust in Christ. Listen to what Paul has urged. Remember, it says in verse 24, it says that he would speak with him about faith in Christ. What, what exactly is he reasons with him about righteousness and self-control? What is, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, look, Felix, you, you need righteousness. And this righteousness cannot be found in and of yourself. It can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does becoming a Christian mean? Becoming a Christian doesn't just mean getting baptized or just praying a, a, a prayer, or it doesn't just mean kind of thinking some nice thoughts about Jesus. The, the Bible calls becoming a Christian being, being declared righteous, being, being justified. And so to, for a person to become a Christian, what are we doing? We're trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation to receive his righteousness. Now, just a couple, couple of truths I want us to meditate on as we think about what Paul would be urging Felix and what I would urge each of you if you're not a believer, to do. Kind of three truths to meditate on. One, remember this again. Once again, Paul would tell Felix, you cannot get this righteousness by your works. You don't have enough self-control to stop being bad. Titus chapter 3, Paul writes that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You are not a Christian based on your goodness. I was listening to the radio several years ago and was listening to a Christian station, and these, these moms were kind of talking, and one of the moms said, you know, my, my kid came to me the other day, and they asked me, Mommy, am, am I bad? And uh, the lady said, and my heart just broke. And I said, no, sweetie, you are not bad, which is terrible advice. When my children said, am I bad? I said, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my. You are far worse than you even know. <laughs> but mommy and daddy love you because we're worse than you know. And we need a righteousness that we cannot possess on our own. We can't work our way to heaven. That is, I think, what Paul is telling Felix, which would have been very foreign to Felix. But the second truth to meditate on here is we're thinking about trusting in Christ and, and his righteousness. Know this, you receive not your righteousness, but you receive Christ's righteousness through faith, through trusting in him. Romans chapter 3 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for who? Not for all who work for it, but for all who believe, for all who trust in Jesus Christ. There's no distinction. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified. That's to be declared righteous. Remember I said there's kind of this legal connotation as well to righteousness. You're, you're justified, declared righteous by God, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation means complete satisfaction. Our, our sins are completely paid for by Jesus' blood. We receive that gift by faith. This was to show not our righteousness, but God's righteousness, because in his divine 
patience, his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, it's righteous, and the justifier, the one who makes righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what happens when we trust in Jesus? When we trust in Jesus, we receive Christ's righteousness just as he receives our sin. I think oftentimes in the evangelical world and North American Christianity, we talk a lot about Jesus taking on our sins, Jesus takes on our sins, and that is, of course, absolutely true. But there's a, another crucial distinction we must understand. Not only does, does Jesus take away our, our sin, which is very important, there's something else also important that must happen before we stand before God. We have to receive Christ's righteousness. And so what happens is all the, the good things that Jesus Christ did, his, his perfect obedience, is now credited to our account. We receive the, the credit for having, do, having done all the things that Jesus actually did. That's the righteousness we have. Here's how Paul would say it again, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so, brothers and sisters, or those of you who aren't brothers and sisters this morning, what Paul urges Felix is what I'm urging you this morning as well. Receive the righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from sin. That doesn't mean, I'm not talking about an action you do. Have to turn from the, the, the path of, of following the world, from pursuing your own goodness, and simply come to God through faith in his son, Jesus. And, and that brings me to the third thing I'd encourage you with as you think about trusting in Christ. After we receive righteousness, and this is for those of you who are believers, meditate on this, we are declared righteous. We're declared righteous through justification. So place your faith in Jesus. You're declared righteous. You, you get his righteousness. But, or let me say and, and then we live in that righteousness. Now, now, righteousness. Now we're actually able to do that which is righteous. John would say, little children in First John, John chapter 3 Little children, let none deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. My goal this morning is, is to alarm you, right? I want to alarm you. If you're in Christ... No, you need to be persuading people, dialoguing, helping them understand their, their need for Christ. And, and you, as, as you encounter sin in your life, what do you need to be? You need to be alarmed. Okay, this is not what's to be true of a believer. If I'm righteous, I'm, I'm in Christ, I, I need to, to turn from this by God's enabling and, and to live like who I am in Christ. The presence of sin in my life should alarm me because I know that it's upon these things that the wrath of God falls. And then my goal also is to alarm you this morning if, if you're not a Christian, to encourage you to, to, to trust in Christ in your alarm, to, to cling to him who is your great salvation and receive the forgiveness, the complete and total forgiveness of God, to receive his love in Christ.
when confronted with our need for unrighteousness, what do we do? We don't start trying to be righteous in and of ourselves. We repent. We acknowledge it as a sin. We agree with God that what is sinful is sin. We trust in Christ. We cling to him. And then we see the fruit of that lived out in our lives.